Welcome to the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets, where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. Further disclosures follow at the conclusion of the episode. This is the Invest It Best podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Invest It Best podcast. My name is Ted Richards and at the time of recording, it's the start of September 2023 and reporting season in Australia has just wrapped up. So an ideal time to check in with equity analyst within Wilson's investment strategy team, Rob Crookston, and we're going to unpack recent events, including which ASX-listed companies delivered outstanding results, and the other side of that coin, which ASX-listed companies underperformed on their guidance, and subsequent share prices of those companies took a bit of a hit. Rob has been a guest on the podcast before, so uh, frequent listeners may be familiar with Rob. Uh, Rob's very much a, a friend of the show, but for those not familiar, Rob is a senior analyst within our investment strategy team. And prior to joining Wilson's, Rob was at Deloitte for eight years, most notably as one of their economists. Rob, welcome back to the show. That's good to be here. Let's get into it. And maybe let's start off high level. Rob, what are three of the biggest trends that have come out of this latest reporting season? Yeah, Ted, we've seen a, a few key trends. I guess the first would be the resilience of the consumer. So earnings in consumer-related sectors, you know, retail being one of them, have held up pretty well in the face of rising rates and, and cost of living pressures. It's a pretty tough macro environment. Uh, and interestingly, consumers are spending more on services like holidays. That's sort of in line of our expectations they're still spending on goods as well. So we haven't seen that strong pivot to services and away from goods as the market and, and as we expected, you know, six, 12 months ago. Uh, so that's number one, that resilience. Number two has been costs. So we've seen positives and, and negative impacts from costs on different sectors and companies. Uh, some companies have seen cost disinflation. So seen costs fall you know, due to raw materials or, or lower freight costs. And others have seen rising costs. We've seen that really for rent, labour and, and utility bills, you know, electricity and, and the such. And then the final sort of trend is, is pricing power. So companies that have been able to pass on higher costs onto their customers have done pretty well in this reporting season in terms of their earnings. Examples here are IAG, so insurance companies, um, or Telstra, you know, telecom companies as well. Both have been able to raise their prices over the year to offset the higher costs that have flown through uh, into their earnings as well. So they're really the key trends we've, we've seen, Ted. Thanks for that, Rob. So we've got the resilience of the consumer, the costs and pricing power as three key themes that you've noticed over the reporting season. And I'm sure we're going to touch on, on each of those uh, in the rest of the discussion. That's at a high level. Let's let's start to zoom in on some of the the sectors within the ASX, and um, let's start off with one of the biggest, and and that's the banks. So, Rob, 
the Aussie banks dominate the ASX index. So um, what, have, what have you seen in that sector? I guess the key bank that reported was CBA. So we'll go through that, Ted. Um, again, some key themes that I've, I've seen in the CBA result. And the first goes back to that resilience that we spoke about earlier, is that one of the key trends you know, at the moment, households are, are repaying their mortgages, even in the face of, of higher rates. And we saw very small incre- increases in the 30, 90-day mortgage arrears, which is still at very low levels and have been at low levels you know, since 2021. And I think the reason we're seeing that, you know, got a couple of reasons. One, we've still got low unemployment in the economy. But two, we've also got these strong financial buffers uh, for households. Um, and one of those key buffers there is the high level of household savings uh, that were built up during the pandemic. So households are still being able to, to pay off mortgages um, using their savings, even if uh, the disposable income is taking a bit of a hit. Yeah, because I feel like, oh, sorry, Rob, just interrupt there, but I, I feel like a story throughout 2022 was this uh, looming mortgage cliff that was going to um, play out through 2023. But yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, it it hasn't been as quick as uh, what may have been anticipated. Yeah, that's right. And I guess that's the other buffer for a lot of households is they've been on fixed rates throughout you know, 22 and, and 23 as well. So really, we're only probably a bit more than halfway through that fixed mortgage cliff now, you know, where we sit today. Um, there's more to come over the next quarter and sort of the end of, of 23, calendar year. So, and and really rates normally, you know, we expect rates to take you know, 6, 12, 18 months to really impact the economy. Um, so there is a bit of a lag. And I think the, the fixed rate cliff or households being on a fixed rate for the last 12 months has, has helped, again, an, another strong financial buffer for households and that resilience. But that is that is coming to an end. Um, you know, we will see most households on, on variable mortgages by, by the end of this year. So, yeah, another story for resilience probably the last 12 months, but I think the outlook slightly changing on that fixed rate mortgage cliff that we are going through right now. Rob, I interrupted you earlier. What was the um, other item that you wanted to share? Yeah, so the second point on CBA and, and the banks in general, you know, we've spoken about this before, is, is competition. Um, you know, there's been competition in the two key aspects for the banks. So the first is lending, especially mortgage lending, which is really the revenue line for banks, and the competition for deposits, which is really the, the cost line for banks. So what we've seen is the competition got lower lending rates and higher deposit rates, and that's hit banks' margins and and CB8 result showed again that we've still seen that trend in declining margins uh, over the last six months really juice those competition pressures. Um, I think management spoke about competition cooling somewhat in the in the ha- in the home lending. You know, mortgage rates have started to rise again, um, so that should help margins. What it did speak about though as a headwind is that deposits. Are still, you know, will still be a, a headwind for earnings over the next 12 months um, and a key challenge on the cost side. So you've still got that competition there uh, and you've still got households moving from you know, really non-interest bearing deposits towards interest bearing deposits and, and term deposits, which are high costs for the banks. So we, we've still got that competition and some of those margin pressures still there. Albeit, you know, a lot of them are, a lot of those pressures are cooling, um, and we saw a bit of evidence of that in the in the last result for CBA. 
Um, I guess the other part of the banks for me, Ted, as well, is that this result didn't really change our view on CBA. Um, those who follow our research know that we, we don't own CBA in the focus portfolio. I, I do think it's a, a very high quality bank, um, but it is very expensive. You know, it deserves a premium relative to the other banks, but that premium has got very stretched over, you know, it's really since COVID. Uh, and valuations now to me look very unsustainable um, for CBA. You know, it's really on double the valuation of the other banks on average. So, I mean, there's still better buying in, in ANZ, NAB and, and Westpac, which are you know, lower, lower multiples for a very similar growth story um, over the next couple of years. So, yeah, this result didn't really change our mind on CBA, um, on, especially on the valuation. Uh, consistent with the banks and, um, and mortgage rates that we've been discussing, um, let's shift over to a different sector where the RBA has been doing its best to slow the economy with huge increases in rates that we've been uh, discussing so far and, and cost of living increases uh, for the consumer as well. So as I touched on, the consumer's been getting hit pretty hard in, in this market. So I'm interested, Rob, what has reporting season looked like for retailers? Have interest rates already impacted retailers like JB Hi-Fi and, and Super Retail's bottom lines? I think the short answer is, is yes. Um, if we take a step back and take JB Hi-Fi, for example, earnings were flat year on year for JBs. So certainly this macro environment that we're in is having an impact on the consumer and, and an impact then on, on the retailers and their, and their sales and their, and their earnings growth as well. Um, I guess what surprised the market was how resilient the consumer was. And in terms of the reality um, was better than the quite negative expectations that, you know, the market had 12 months ago. So it goes back to, I guess, what we spoke about um, on the banks. You know, households have had those saving buffers and we're only really halfway through that fixed rate cliff. Um, you know, this is this has given support to, to consumers. But we do think that support will unwind over the next six months. So I think it'll be a harder 12 months for retailers in FY24. Um, than it has been over FY23. Uh, but the key question for us, Ted, is, you know, is this reflected in consensus forecasts? That's always the key. You know, what was the market pricing in? Um, we take JB Hi-Fi again. Earnings are expected to decline 29% in FY24. So that's a pretty bleak picture for earnings um, over the next, you know, sort of nine months now, really, for FY24. I mean, so I think really now earnings are reflecting this negative outlook on the consumer and are probably a bit more in line with our thinking on you know, how the consumer will be over the next sort of 12, 18 months, um, which I think yeah, will look pretty negative. I think the, the key for the retail sector is stock selection is going to be key over the next 12 months. And we're looking for retailers at good value that are category killers. You know, take Bunnings, for example, you know, obviously part of West Farmers, retailers that can take market share, or that are you know, increasing their store numbers as well over, over the next 12 months. Um, so they're, they're probably the things we're looking for, um, but I think value uh, and some earnings growth will also be key to look for out for as well. Okay, Rob, Rob that's uh, the consumer and retail. Let's look at a different part of the market, one that's far less discretionary. What about the healthcare industry? Um, that's usually far more defensible and resilient. Uh, any healthcare companies, Rob, that got your attention over the last few weeks? Yeah, I mean, the one that took our eye was, was ResMed. Uh, unfortunately, there's one that disappointed in terms of share price performance um, really over, over August. And 
there's two separate events that for Resmed that occurred in August. One was the result, and and just for context, Resmed sells sleep apnea devices or CPAP machines. Um, it has two key products on the market. Um, you know, one is the cheaper AS10, and there's the more expensive AS11. Um, and I think for the result, the market was expecting more of the AS11, so the more expensive machines to be sold. But the the results show that wasn't the reality, and really due to supply constraints still on on those machines. So more of the cheaper AS10s were sold, um, and really from that consensus forecast changed to reflect that different sales mix over the next 12 months, um, reflecting that they expect, and the market expects more AS10s to be sold over the next six to 12 months. So that hit uh, margins for, for ResMed. Um, disappointing, but I think that's, you know, it's pretty short term. It's really a six to 12 months disappointment. We, we still like the, the long-term picture. I guess the second event and maybe the more material event was the, the rise of the weight loss drugs um, from Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly. Um, and sentiment around these drugs and their impact on ResMed, it, you know, it rattled uh, sentiment around the stock. And if you think about it, you know, take a step back, um, many sleep apnea patients are, are obese. And so there's a concern that weight, lo weight loss drugs will take demand away um, from sleep apnea devices. So there's a bit of concern there. I think it's certainly a risk. Um, but I think you're more than compensated uh, when ResMed trades, you know, currently on a P of, of 22 times, 12 months forward, um, you are compensated for that risk. Um, and the market's got very excited about these drugs. Um, we've got a few sort of retorts to the, that current view that, you know, these drugs will wipe out demand um, for, for ResMed devices. And, you know, number one is they're very expensive. They're a thousand US dollars a month. So we, we struggle to see how there'll be this broad take up of the drug um, across the US and, and globally. The second is they're injectable. So I don't think... Again, you get this broad uptake in, in injectables you know, versus maybe an oral drug would, would probably be a bit more concerning. Um, and then the ResMed itself, you know, it now effectively has a monopoly on sleep apnea devices after a, a large recall for its biggest competitor, which is Philips. Um, so we still expect it to take market share. Um, and with that, you know, volume and sales over the next 12 months or, or more. Um, and, you know, sleep apnea is still a, you know, deeply underdiagnosed market. Um, we think there's a long runway for growth uh, as more patients get diagnosed with sleep apnea and potentially these patients aren't in the obese category as well. There's more of these sort of moderate um, patients as well that should get diagnosed, we expect, over the medium term. So I think there's a very plausible scenario here that we live in a world where we have these weight loss drugs um, and they, they work well with sleep apnea devices. Um, at the moment, to me, it looks like the market is just expecting these weight loss drugs to completely wipe out the demand uh, for ResMed, which I don't think um, will be the case, um, for, you know, for, for ResMed over the medium term. Um, so we think the sell down has been has been overblown. Again, as I said disappointing in terms of share price performance, but I think here you got a good buying opportunity to get what is you know we think a high quality company. Um, and as you said at the beginning, that you know shouldn't really have you know, the, the economy has no impact on it on its sales. Um, so still like ResMed. Um, yeah, I think you get it at a good valuation. So we've done the banks, the consumer, retail, healthcare. Let's shift across to the real estate sector. Rob, uh, what got your attention here? 
yeah, I think the, the real one for us, and it's our top pick in the, in the space, is Goodman Group. So it's a pretty good result, um, but it really got overshadowed by the, the further details on data centers. Um, and, and these details were, you know, it's 30% of its work in progress. That's $13 billion is in data centers. Uh, and the size of, of the opportunity for, uh, for Goodman's could be around 30 billion of, of end value. Um, and we think you know, data centers will be accretive to margins and earnings yields for Goodman. So there's a, a really there's a really good story here uh, from the result, um, you know, over the medium to medium to long term for good for Goodman's. Uh, we like the data center vertical um, for for Goodman's. It provides diversification into what we think will be a in demand sector over the next decade and re and really beyond. Um, so that news certainly got us a lot more positive on Goodman's, or even more positive than we were before. And as I said, it's our preferred real estate exposure. Um, and yeah, this is just provides um, you know, more support for that view. Now, I know they're not an apples with apples comparison, but if you really did like the, the data center story, how does Goodman's compare in evaluation uh, to say something like NextDC, which is very much um, focused in on the data centers? We, we have like NextDC in the past. We actually removed it from our portfolio last week. And if you think about Goodman's, well, the problem with NextDC for us at the moment is it doesn't generate really any cash. There's no free cash flow from NextDC, and there won't be for a long time. So that's maybe our slight concern there. I think it's a good way to play the data center thematic. But now Goodman's opened up that they've got data centers as well in their, in their pipeline. I think mean, Goodman's is a great way to play the thematic, but you're getting that with, with free cash flow and, and earns growth on what is a great sector in general in terms of their logistics business. So we've probably now shifted our preference in terms of our, you know, playing that data center thematic towards Goodman's and away from next DC. Okay, well, somewhat related to real estate. Um, what about the building material sector? Anything that you can share there? Yeah, again, our, our top pick is, is James Hardy's. And it's one of those companies that's benefited from that cost disinflation trend that we spoke about right at the beginning. And, and really, this was from lower freight and raw material costs. Um, and this had a, had a flow and effect to, to margins and margin expansion. So even with you know pressure on volumes in this high rate environment, um, you saw margin expansion and earnings growth um, in the quarter for, for Hardy's. Um, which was which was really good to see, and I, I think this disinflation trend, so it could be a broader trend over the next six to twelve months, um, and it's something that we're screening, you know, the index for at the moment, looking for for further ideas, you know, like James Hardy's, um, and, and perspective. James Hardy saw a seventeen percent earnings upgrade on its FY twenty four earnings, so it was you know it was material for earnings. Um, this cost disinflation story. So we're now looking. Um, around the market and see if we can find other stocks that will follow that trend as well. Um, Rob, early you mentioned uh, removing NextDC out of your Aussie equities portfolio. I noticed you recently added Amcor to to the portfolio. So for those not familiar with Amcor, can you provide a bit of background uh, on the company and um, why you've decided to add it right now? Yeah, so Amcor is a, a packaging company so for food, beverage, healthcare and other consumer staple products so it's you know packaging for your your burgers or your tofu um your dishwasher tabs or your, your dog food or even your uh your, your coffee as well uh in terms of those nespresso pods they also um sell as well so but it's phase two 
big headwinds in terms of its earnings over the last 12 months. The first is, is destocking. Um, I think we're getting now to the end of this destocking uh, cycle, especially in the US. Um, and this really came from a, a one-off COVID dislocation. So in memory back to 21 and 22, those crazy times with COVID, um, retailers were concerned that, you know, you know, with their stock levels because of the supply chain issues that they were experiencing at the time, really driven by, by COVID and, and, and COVID supply chain issues. So retailers built up substantial stock levels during that, those sort of 21 and 22 um, years. But by mid-22, you know, stock levels had improved um, as, as supply chain issues improved. But at the same time, the consumer got weaker. So this led to a, a need for a pretty extensive uh, destocking. Um, and, that, and we've seen that over the last 12 months. And that has hit Amcor um, really because, you know, it's it sort of end consumer or it was end retailer was, was destocking the goods that it, it makes the packaging for. So we think we, we know, we're now seeing evidence that that destocking is coming to an end. You know, firstly, through um, some sort of US data that we're looking at in terms of food and beverage um, inventory levels. That now seems to be uh, finding a base and a floor, which is good. And then from company management teams, you know, retailers like Walmart, uh, you know, 50% in the US of, of their sales are groceries. Um, they spoke about how they're a lot happier of their inventory levels now, than they, especially when they were 12 months ago. So there's good news there on the actual end use or the end retailers. And then even from Amcor's management team as well. So, you know, they're talking about how they think the destocking, you know, is, is slowing and it's coming to an end by the end of this, this calendar year. So getting pretty close now to the end of, of that of that headwind, um, which is good news. And the other one, we spoke, spoke about that before and what we're looking for, um, what we're screening the index for cost disinflation. So costs have been an issue for Amcor, um, especially around raw materials and again, freight. But as we saw with Hardee's, that's starting to, to dissipate, that, that sort of risk, that cost risk. Um, so again, an, another headwind, but I think that could turn to a tailwind for margins um, over the next six, 12 months as those costs start to fall away as well. So we think we, you know, volumes could improve as that de-stocking cycle um, comes to an end. You got um, hopefully then they can actually start to pass some prices on to to customers as well, and then you also get costs starting to fall uh, as you see some of those you know, freight and raw material costs um, fall away as well. So we think we've hit sort of peak pessimism for the stock, and I think it provides a good entry point you know on on a PE basis of around about fourteen times what we think. In, in a normal cycle is a pretty defensive defensive stock. Okay, so that's the reporting season that's been, and, and thanks for that wrap-up. Rob, what are you going to be looking at over the next six months? I think, you know, from a macro perspective, inflation is still going to be key, um, and, and the path for interest rates with that with that inflation outlook as well. You know, it's still key for valuations over, over the next six to 12 months. You know, if inflation keeps falling, I think that will be a a tailwind for, for valuations, which is one we're looking out for. Clues on China's stimulus be especially important for the resource sector. We're seeing inklings of that at the moment, but we're looking out for more clues um, that should support commodities. You know, can this consumer resilience continue? That's probably another trend we're looking for or, or something we're looking out for um, over the next six months into February. You know, Our biggest sector call is healthcare, um, and that's probably disappointed slightly on, on its earnings growth. And its earnings resilience. So can it can that deliver 
can that continue to deliver earnings growth as it did you know pre-covid um that's something we're looking out for as well hey rob thanks very much for that it's been a it's been a fascinating chat and um and an absolute pleasure having you on again thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts uh, with the listeners on this latest reporting season pleasure ted thanks for having me a link to Rob's latest research is available on the, in the episode show notes. You can also get, go to the Wilson's website and look for Rob's recent research under Research and Insights. If you're interested in anything discussed in today's podcast, then please speak with your Wilson's advisor. And for those not currently a client with Wilson's, you can re- request a call from a Wilson's advisor through the Wilson's website, www.wilsonsadvisory.com.au. My name's Ted Richards, and you've been listening to the Invest at Best podcast. This podcast has been prepared by Wilson's. Wilson's has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision, and past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilson's advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilson's may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast.